Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Seth Bernard for a conversation about constructing the city of Republican Rome. And in the conversation, we're going to focus in on the period of the 5th to 1st centuries BC. Dr. Bernard is Associate Professor, Department of Classics, University of Toronto, based in Canada. He joins us from Toronto. I join us from Toronto. And pre-pandemic, we probably would have been conducting this episode in person. Dr. Bernard is author of the book, Building Mid-Republican Rome, Labor, Architecture, and the Urban Economy, which was published by Oxford University Press. And he told me that the paperback version is coming out any day now. Welcome to the call, Seth. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Okay, so City of Rome, uh, Republican period. We said, I guess a bit loosely, we can probably go in and out if needed in this period. Uh, fifth centuries, uh, fifth century to first centuries as a, if we were to uh, circumscribe the, the uh, uh, period. What types of buildings would have been prevalent in this period in Rome? Yeah, so uh, the you know the number one thing about this period is that this is the period of imperial conquest. So it's a period where money is flowing into the city, where the elites are winning wars. They're taking that money back and they're investing enormously in building, but they're doing it in ways that promote themselves. Uh, so we see an enormous amount of triumphal temples, of temples built uh, to record victories, to celebrate victories. We also start seeing large public infrastructure. We see Rome's first aqueducts. Uh, we see the first roads, the Via Appia is built in this period. Um, we see the first basilicas. Basically, anything you can think about that is Roman architecture sees its first iteration in the city of Rome uh, in this period, financed by these spoils of, of conquest. What's, um, it's pre-Christianity still at this point. What would have been a uh, noteworthy temple that scholars are aware of that would have been built in Rome in this period? Sure. So uh, I think the, the hallmark temple of the Republic is this temple of uh, Jupiter Optimus Maximus on the Capitoline. Uh, Jupiter, you know, greatest and biggest. These are superlatives in every sense of the word. Uh, it is built in uh, the 7th, 6th centuries. It's, it's uh, by... Uh, by the tradition, it's dedicated in 509 BC on the first day of the Republic. So the first thing the consuls of the Republic do. So it is the sort of quintessential Republican temple. It's this enormous temple. Uh, you can still see parts of it underneath uh, the museum on the Capitoline Hill today. Um, and it's built of these large stone blocks, uh, this big podium. Uh, and it remains sort of the seat of Republican religion. I mean, it, it's a pantheon. There are many gods, but this is the the highest, greatest god, and this is his seat on the Capitol Hill uh, of the city of Rome. Okay. Um, so when we talk about, uh, and I'll do my best to kind of ask questions uh, in and partition the questions, because we're talking about not just buildings in this conversation, but we're talking about uh, beyond buildings too, so, so more generally construction. So when it when it comes to roads, let's talk roads for for a moment because you mentioned sure, that that sure. starts to occur in this period that we're talking about. What kind of materials would have been used 
to build uh, roads beyond dirt. So let's presume we're, we're past the, the, the dirt period. So what kind yeah. of materials were, were used? So in the very early period, here we're talking, the Via Appia is the first really constructed road leading away from Rome. It started in 312 BC. Uh, stretches of it are uh, have curbs. They have blocks of local volcanic stone called tuff, which, uh, which lines their curbs, and they are uh, bedded with dirt and rubble. Eventually, uh, through the 3rd and 2nd centuries, they start to pave this, and they pave it in a black uh, volcanic stone, a very hard volcanic mm. stone uh, called selce or silex uh, in English. Uh, it comes from, um, you know, this is Italy as a volcanic landscape, so it comes from a, a crater, an old uh, eruption nearby, uh, and it's a very hard, durable stone, uh, and they put these down. And you can still go there, you could see, you know, you could walk the Via Appia, you could see these ruts uh, from wagons to, sort of over time grinding mm. into these stones, but there are these really hard stones that they're using, and they're aware that the durability of these stones uh, are important for, for roads, for supporting traffic, wheeled vehicular traffic. But it's that uh, silex or selce that's important. What is it about roads? So there's the easy way is use dirt and you you uh, create grooves, if you will, you over time um, to break it in. Why do you think they uh, had the aspiration of uh, paving it? Perhaps yeah. a, perhaps a uh, uh, anachronism but 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 why why were they aspiring to pave it versus just saying okay let's just make sure it's a well-grooved uh and as flat as we can get it road yeah uh, it's a good question i you know i think paving is you know okay they're not using asphalt but in some sense it's an important word because i don't want to suggest that rome is inventing roads I mean, that's absurd right there are these paths there's this old road called the via latina which is led away from rome to the southeast for, for maybe millennia before and i mean there are these paths that people use but i think uh you know the two things that are happening in this period one uh, the nature of traffic is is changing there there is a greater volume of essentially state traffic so the army is moving out uh, certain commercial agents. I don't think you can't see these roads as military or economic. They have these sort of combined purposes. Um, but, you know, I think uh, the um, the Roman state is more interested in what's moving along its roads. And it realizes that the efficiency of putting these uh, blocks down and investing in this uh, is important for it. The other thing that's important here is Rome is starting to develop this notion of territory and territorial control. And, and this is fundamental to what any state, right? States are extension of power upon territory. And so running these roads out and making them visible and making them permanent and making them durability is telling us a lot about the, the sort of fundamental nature of the Roman state. Uh, one really cool thing about the Via Appia, that first road, uh, is that it's straight for about hmm. 100 kilometers uh, down to uh, essentially Anzio and Terracina. And it's not going over level terrain. It's straight and it goes over a, basically an old volcano, the, the, the Alban Mount. Um, but there is this sense that Rome is saying, you know, this this is how I understand territory. This linearity is part of how I express my power upon territory. So it's it's I think there's a fundamental ideological thing uh, going on there with the way they're building this. Yeah, it sounds like Young Street in Toronto. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's this sort of you know, it just goes forever. Right? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Although this would go right over Lake Simcoe or something like that. You know, the Romans wouldn't stop. Nothing stops them. They, they didn't stop at the lake. Okay. That's right. All right. Um, within the city itself, 
uh, in this period, I'm I, if, if fine. I'm I'm going to use the term uh, pave, and I know paving, and I know that might not be the perfectly correct term, but to be colloquial um, uh, in the conversation, so we're not doing disclaimers every every time when we're chatting. <laughs> Were they paving uh, roads in Rome in this period? They start. Uh, we have notices in our sources. So our, our archaeological evidence is very fragile for this. On the one hand, it's very hard to date paving stones unless you have good associate. You know, you have to lift them up. Do you have, do you have stratigraphic material underneath? Not, not always. Um, but we do find little traces of, mm-hmm. of these roads within the city. But what's most important here are our sources, uh, in particular the Roman historian Livy, who's writing around uh, the time of the early Augustan period. So you know, he's writing around, let's say, 30 B.C., uh, he gives us notices of early construction projects, and he's telling us that, you know, in the early third century, in the course of the third century, in the second century, uh, the edels or the censors, so these magistrates responsible for Roman building, are starting to take on the task of putting curbs in the city uh, and then paving. I think paving is a fine word. I mean, it, it accomplishes what we want, what we wanted to do, and they're doing this within the city. So the city itself is getting a pretty solid. Uh, road network, in, in, intra-city transport network in the same period. We At least we, we assume from these sources. Okay. And a point of clarification, what actual uh, material would have been used for the roads in this period? Same thing. That same silex, that same selce, uh, those hard uh, lava, lava stone, essentially, uh, pavers. We do find pavements, you know, in the 5th century, we find pavements of um, uh, a volcanic top. They're using this, and, and they will continue to do this for some areas down to a certain period. They're very attentive to how durable the material is, so they're trying to select uh, harder and harder uh, volcanic stones as they can expand their reach, as they can extract these stones from quarries. Um, but uh, you know, the preference for roads, at least, is, is still to use that very durable um, uh, selce. What materials would have would they have been using for uh, residential dwellings in this period? So they are using a, a, a composite construction technique. They'll often build uh, the foundations in cut stone. These volcanic stones, these uh, they're they're uh, they're flow stones, but they're more aggregated, uh, tough tufo in Italian. Um, they'll build the walls up from timber framing and uh, pise, so that's just sort of rammed earth or pushed earth together. Um, only, you know, it, it's costly to do much else. To make a whole building of cut stone is very costly. They won't tend to do that. Uh, and then the roofs have terracotta uh, tiles. Uh, fire tiles appear in the sixth century. These are heavy, so you know we find the tiles appearing at the same time we find cut stone foundations uh, in domestic architecture at the same time. But this is, um, you know, down to the third, down to the middle of the second century. This is a period before concrete. Uh, and until, uh, until that sort of building revolution in the second and really the first century uh, BC at Rome, um, they're using rammed earth timber framing. Uh, once they start using concrete, that will change everything. But that's what we're seeing for a long time for that period. What uh, uh, century did you say concrete comes into existence? So there's a new study, it's debated, uh, uh, it's a good study, I think, by uh, a colleague and a friend of mine uh, in the mid-2nd century, um, arguing for a date starting in domestic architecture and then flowing from there towards um, monumental public architecture uh, of about 150. Uh, It's hard for us to pinpoint it, but about 150. 
um, and uh, and from there, um, you know, it becomes really important. It allows Romans to build on scales uh, they've simply never done before. It allows, um, you know, these people who got wealthy in foreign wars come back to Rome, and instead of building little rinky-dink temples, they build, you know, massive theater garden complexes uh, that they've never done before. So it allows sort of the expansion of imagination uh, and, uh, and architecture on a scale that's just never seen before. And that's... Uh third and second century bc right uh, yeah b- everything i'm saying is bc yeah, okay That's a good yeah, point. Just a... uh, yeah and about uh, mid second century bc is what we think and then it really takes off around 100 uh you know from 100 to 50 bc the city is really sort of um radically changing with that onset of of, of concrete masonry i had a very nice conversation with dr uh, christopher shavitsky with the norwegian institute in rome um, a couple days ago, so we actually published it, and he, he mentioned the volcanic stone as well. Um, how close would these quarries have been to the city of Rome, and how were they getting this material from the quarries into the city? That's, a, that's another good question. So the, the, the city is the seven hills of Rome. We all know how many hills uh, Rome There's more hills, but that's another <laughs> conversation. right? So the seven hills of Rome were all volcanic stone. So a lot of this stone is coming from Rome proper. I mean, they're, they're, they're digging out from under their feet. And you can see this. If you go to the backside of the cap line today, you can find quarried surfaces. You can see tunnels where they're tunneling. Uh, they're doing that. Eventually, as their power expands, because a lot of this depends on political power, the ability to extract uh, this material doesn't come uh, you know, on the market necessarily. Um, and they start to go wider and wider for, for stone. Now, they're not going too far away. One of the big sources is about 15 kilometers upstream um you, you know it is now within the well within the roman suburbs it's, it's not far away at all and they start floating that material down the river so down the tiber down the anio which feeds into the tiber uh, they're doing that to some extent already in a very early period we now know this there's been some interesting petrochemical work to, to figure out where these stones are coming from um, but it is this mixture of coring under their feet and then sort of dilating to go further and further away. Now, the big feature, now concrete appears in the mid-2nd century. The other thing that appears in the mid-2nd century for the very first time is marble. Because we think of Rome as a city of marble, certainly under the empire, uh, and we know that the marble that's coming into the city starting about 150 BC, starting at the same time as concrete, is coming from Greece. It's Greek marble, and it's shipped overseas. And And it's a stone I think Romans would understand as being Greek, uh, and understand as part of this process of imperial conquest. When it came to homes in this period, was there a government registry that keeps track of home ownership that scholars are aware of or not? And do you think that owning a home was looked at in the same way that it's looked at oftentimes in places like you know, the UK or, or probably almost anywhere in Europe, right? North America, et cetera, et cetera, in terms of at like an investment opportunity uh, from a cachet perspective. Do you think there was that kind of yeah. uh, perception about question. home ownership in Rome in this period that we have in contemporary times? So, you know, that's a good question. I can tell you that when we get later into the Republic, the answer is probably. We have this famous speech from Cicero, I, I think I work on an early period because I just can't stand Cicero, but you have to read him eventually, right? Mm-hmm. And he has this speech. So he's kicked out of Rome, uh, he's exiled, and then he comes back and he finds that his enemies have demolished his house. 
and he gives this big speech on my house. Uh, and it's all about how, mm. you know, how he loved his house and how he hates his opponents who have taken the time to destroy his house and, you know, how important the spot was. Um, but, mm. you know, in terms of government uh, registration, in terms mm-hmm. of property ownership, it's hard for us. To, our evidence is just so slender. Uh, you know, we have these uh, surveys of the city of Rome on marble. On, we have this massive map of the city of Rome on a slab, on slabs of marble from a government office dating to the Severan dynasty. So here we're talking about 200 CE or you know, AD 200. Um, and there's been a lot of discussion about how that reflects practices of, of the earlier point. You know, it does seem like that map may be a copy of an earlier map uh, of the Flavian period. So that's taking us back into the late first century AD. Uh, we have building um, government building codes. So uh, the, the state is interested in how high buildings are, how close mm. they are together. Uh, going back to the second century BC, uh, but we don't have any physical evidence of this registry. Uh, and then, if we go all the way back uh, to the you know, our first sort of extant Roman law code, the Twelve Tables of the mid fifth century uh, BC, we find discussion of how you know don't take a beam out of someone else's house, um, don't don't um, you know, leave gaps in houses, things like this. But that seems like a different world. It seems like a, a much more rural world um, or a, a world of sort of punctuated elite houses, uh, as it were. So it, you know. This is one of these things where the evidence is just not, uh, it's not very thick, um, and, and it's hard for us to tell. Uh, you know, I think of the Toronto real estate market. I don't think there was a Toronto real estate market yet uh, in, in Republican Rome until maybe the very end of the Republic. As it were. Okay. Did, uh, have, have you or are you aware of any kind of title documents that, that exist? And like, what I'm thinking is, did have scholars come across uh, someone that would have owned a home in that period and they they had a document that at least certified that they owned the home. Are you aware of anything like like that to certify that a person actually owned the property? I am not aware of any trace of uh, of of declarations of property ownership and any sort of material. Um, Romans were very big on, especially in this period, on contracts that were made um, uh, that were made orally. I mean, these were binding mm. contracts. The gods were involved. Um, mm. uh, I, I, I cannot think of a, uh, from Rome, uh, any, any direct evidence of, of declarations of property ownership. Um, yeah, I don't okay. know. It's a good, I don't know how people would go up to a house and know whose house it was. I mean, there was this practice for elite houses of you would, um, you would nail the trophies that you took in your campaigns. If, I mean, this is we're talking about if you're at the apex of the political hierarchy here mm. and you come back and you've taken shields from Macedon or something, you might nail them to the front of your house. And if you walk into your house, you'd see statues of your ancestors in the entranceway. So in, in that sense, there's sort of a reflection of whose house this is. Um, but, you know, in terms of a, a property bill or something like that, a deed of sale, I can't think of any direct evidence. I bet you uh, squatting issues were more prevalent back then. They, in fact, show up in law. Uh, adverse possession shows up in the 5th century BCE, so you know, a long time ago. Right? You know, we know it happens. I, in, again, in a rural context, but I can't imagine it's not being applied to the city. Um, we have one complaint. That, you know, I think some people are complaining that they're buying houses with other people's stuff still nailed on the doors, right? Mm. So, yeah, no, it, it may have been confusing. It may have been confusing at the end, um, for sure.
Okay, uh, what do scholars know about the labor force? The roles, so the different um, types of positions that were needed to develop buildings, um, different types of construction, like you mentioned, aqueducts and roads. So the positions and also the, the people, the types of people. Yeah, so, you know, we think of the construction industry today as being a very highly professionalized, uh, you know, a, a very, there's a, it's a very skilled industry. Um, and when we go back far in time in Rome, uh, we find a period before that when uh, Romans are relying on citizen labor, on compulsory labor corvées, you know, as a, we find this in other world empires. So it's very prevalent in, uh, in Imperial China. Um, uh, in, in, it's very prevalent in ancient Near Eastern uh, empires, you know, where they are as a tax ask, asking their citizens to help build X, Y, or Z monument. Uh, you know, there are only so many things you can expect from someone who's never, you know, on, if on Tuesday someone were to come to me and were to say, build something, I would say, well, I'm going to do the best I can, but I'm going to give you a wall. I'm not going to give you a temple. I'm going to give you a wall, right? I mean, you can do something simple. Over time, we see the specialization and the separation of the building force of Rome. And this is, a, this is an interesting narrative. We see the professionalization of the architect uh, as someone who supervises um, and eventually takes a hand in the sort of engineering aspects. Um, and I, that goes hand in hand with more specialized buildings, with, with aqueducts, which take a great deal of sort of mathematical know-how, um, with roads, which also do the same. Um, and, you know, the, the third ingredient to add here um, between sort of citizen labor to professional building industry is slavery, because a big, um, a big shift in the Republican period by virtue of conquest is the bringing of millions, maybe millions, hundreds of thousands for sure, maybe uh, an order of magnitude about that, uh, of enslaved people to Italy, where they were put to work. So a big question is, you know, where were they put to work? Were they put to work uh, in building? Um, to what, what, what role did they play there? Uh, you know, do we see, for example, when Greece is sending marble to Rome, uh, are they also sending skilled slaves who know how to work that marble or, you know, uh, those sorts of things like that? So slavery was used in this period, um, but you also mentioned, um, and it probably fits in into that uh, compulsory labor. Was does compulsory labor is that demarcated to uh, s slavery, or was uh, other citizens also required to build uh, buildings as well? Yeah, so one of the arguments to make in my book is that there's a bit of a, a shift here in, in terms of the mode of production. Uh, and at an earlier period, you have reliance on, on free labor, but not through wages, but through state control, through the autoc autocratic ability to command citizens who are participatory in this state to build. Uh, and as slavery rises, uh, you have a shift towards slavery and wage labor. And you know, it becomes more professional. You either train your slave to become an architect, and we know this happens. Uh, we have instances of wealthy Romans buying 500 skilled slaves to, to help them rebuild, flip houses uh, in the city of Rome in this period, um, and free wage labor. So it's that shift from, um, when I say uh, corvée or compulsory labor, I mean free citizens who are forced or compelled to build. Uh, towards um, a market that includes both slaves and free wage labor. And I, I think that shift comes around 300 BC. Okay. Architects and engineers. In this period, 
were they considered the same position or was there a distinction? So the best source for this is this writer named Vitruvius, who's writing again uh, in the very late Republic and then in the, in the early empire um, around 50 to 30 BC. And Vitruvius is promoting his profession. He was a military engineer under Caesar uh, and then an architect, and he's promoting his profession uh, as, you know, as professional, as it were, as doctors or, you know, other people who need very high level um, uh, training. Um, we tend to encounter uh, the word architect as uh, in our epigraphic sources, in our historical sources, uh, other than pictures, as a sort of um, overseer and someone who can um, manage the site, as it were. I mean, the word literally means chief builder, uh, as it were. So someone who is more skilled, a master uh, on the site, who is overseeing the site. Um, I would assume that it would be those people who would have the engineering know-how. Uh, you know, we um, there, there are specific engineers, people who... Uh, specialize in running aqueducts who we find in the empire who, who know this sort of knowledge but, but Vitruvius tells us that architects need training in geometry uh, he mm -hmm. refers to things like building bridges uh, building uh, you know things we would think of as engineering um, problems in in his work as being within the umbrella of the architect so I think you know there is this transform transformation of the of the uh, of the occupation from uh, overseer to someone who also has that broad specialized knowledge who resembles eventually uh, the sort of architect we think of today. That's, uh, that may have been a confusing answer. No, no, it's fine. It's a bit of a confusing answer. It's fine, topic. Seth. Do, um, are scholars aware if the role of architect uh, came before engineer or vice versa in Rome? Yeah, I, I don't know that you would separate them. Uh, I think that's the, you know, I, yeah, I don't, I think we would, we would separate them, but I think we would assume that the person supervising a construction uh, job would have mathematical geometrical knowledge uh, to do applied engineering, essentially. And that the, the division is happening a little bit later uh, you know, in the imperial period. Okay, understood. Um, what's known about how architects um, and engineers... <laughs> <laughs> in this period, <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> well, sure. what's known about how they were trained? Is it strictly an apprentice type model? Uh, were they sent to a place like uh, Greece, perhaps earlier on? Um, did schools, uh, academic institutions develop in Rome to in this period to, to train uh, architects yeah. and engineers? What's what's known about their education, how they were educated? So not much. The issue here is that most of the architects we know for this period are, are celebrities. They tend to be Greek celebrities uh, who come who come westward, but were trained in Greece. Uh, and then we hit Vitruvius, who gives us this broad sort of liberal arts education that uh, that every architect should need. Um, before this, we don't really know. We should though emphasize that training at Rome uh, is is based on households. There's really no investment in large scale training. Uh, into the empire. I mean, you have these things called uh, paedagogia, which are large slave schools, uh, which we see on villas, and then occasionally in the city. There's one on the Caelian in the city of Rome. Uh, we see them occasionally in the city of Rome. But training is a household thing. So apprenticeship is fundamental to, or you know, learning by doing, learning on the job uh, is really fundamental to, uh, to acquiring skill uh, in the Roman world, in building as, as I think in, in other crafts. 
as far as we know. But most of the evidence for that is later. It's going to be Imperial. Uh, part of this uh, answer may have to be interpretive, which is completely fine. Um, but I'm curious, what do you think Rome's aspirations was in this period from an urban planning perspective? Yeah, I think, you know, it, it, it almost as if uh, in the beginning they sort of um, sleepwalk into having the city. They find this. I think that uh, it, it is that one gets the sense that population precedes amenities uh, and that by the time they're building aqueducts, they're doing so because the city has grown to a size that they need fresh water. It, it, you know, they're not really planning ahead uh, in that sense. They have this remarkable urban planning program in terms of, you know, the provision of fresh water, uh, the, the taking away of refuse through the cloaca maxima. They have a sewer system. Uh, you know, they have a road system. They have all these things. But there's a sense that it's done sort of in some ways in a patchwork way. I think this is... Um, there are many ways to explain. Here's the interpretive part. There are many ways to explain this, right? So one way to explain it is the political system. Every year you have elected consuls. These consuls don't necessarily need to coordinate. Often they hate the people who were there last year. You know, censors come up. There's a lot of antipathy among the Roman elite between various families. You know, there are a lot of deal break, uh, deal brokering behind the scenes. And that's not the sort of system uh, that's going to make big unified architectures. So I think that's one mm. issue. Uh, the other issue is simply Roman's perception of time and, and how these things would last and, you know, and conservation and heritage and things that we think of. There's a fascinating study uh, that came out of, a couple of years ago in a journal uh, by, by Brent Shaw uh, asking um, uh, whether Romans had a, had a future. You know, did, did Romans conceive of a sort of long term future in the same way that we do? Do they understand the passage of time? you know, beyond generations, beyond mm. a certain cutoff. And these are important things when you think of city management and, and heritage and and, uh, and urban planning. You know, you have to have that sort of foresight. I don't think they have that foresight. And yet, you know, by virtue of sort of responding to disasters and fires and the need for do th doing this and, and water, they're able to come up with a, a pretty solid city, at least on, on a comparative basis for that period. In your research, did you get any sense of how many construction accidents occurred in terms of how prevalent buildings or bridges uh, fell fell down, collapsed? Uh, that's a. I, I'm, now I'm going to try to think. There, we do have um, we do have some instances. The problem is, you know, our sources aren't very attentive to them. Uh, you know, our sources will only tell us. You know, we, I, I referred to Livy. Livy's telling us Roman history, and Roman history doesn't really care if a bridge falls down. We have repairs of bridges. We have records of big, devastating fires in the city, you know, happening not so infrequently. And then we have, you know, weird things like a cow crawls up to the top of an apartment complex and falls off, right? But he's not giving us this sort of blow by blow in this year, this fell down. So we have to be... Um, you know, we have to sort of assume that with building phases and, and remaking things, they're doing this, but we don't really know. Yeah. Did construction companies exist in this period in in respect to was there share shareholders? Did, what, did someone who may have owned the company, did that person consider themselves a, a builder? Um, could you make uh reasonable or very good income uh 
running a construction company? Do scholars know anything about that in this period? By the later Republic, uh, people are investing in construction. The best example, I've already made up passing references, uh, the, the proverbially wealthiest Roman of the Republic, this man named Crassus, who is part of the triumvirate uh, with Caesar and Pompey. Uh, Crassus, we hear, keeps a staff of 500 slave architects, uh, and uh, he goes and he buys dilapidated buildings in Rome, and he flips them for a profit. So he's doing that. And he's not a builder. He's employing them. Um, you know, at the same time, we have people called uh, conductores. These are uh, people who are purchasing building contracts and then arranging for, uh, for the labor gangs to work underneath them. They're not necessarily the builders, and they're not necessarily the architects. So it is happening. Uh, it's happening certainly by the first century BC, possibly by the second century BC. Before that, I don't know. I, I would tend to see it as a, as a development. I, I don't think one can necessarily put that earlier in the third and fourth century, uh, earlier in the second century into the third and fourth centuries BC. Um, but certainly by the later Republic, uh, people are seeing flipping buildings and the real estate market as, as a lucrative investment. Uh, yeah. Interesting. So a closing question, Seth. If, could you summarize first century, so the end of the period that we're speaking about, um, if you could sum summarize in more general terms, where construction was at from a materials technology, you know, an acuity perspective. And then after that, when, when would you consider the next breakthrough in evolution and change in construction in the city of Rome? Sure. Yeah. I think, you know, if you have uh, a Roman of 100 BC and you were to transport him or her back in time to 200 BC, uh, they'd be blown away by the difference. And that difference comes mm. down to concrete and the use of concrete and the scale uh, and plasticity uh, of architecture that that allowed that cut stone using piece rammed earth, you know, things like this just was not going to do. Uh, however, these these now I, it's, it's almost like a, a picking up of these threads rather than a breaking of the next big stage is Augustus. Uh, with that first emperor, um, we find a very sort of self-conscious uh, investment in remaking the city of Rome. Uh, over a period of 20, 30 years, uh, early in his reign, you know, he is said to uh, rebuild 82 temples in the city of Rome. Uh, he opens up the marble quarries uh, at Luna on a scale, in, in Italy on a scale that had never been done before. And he transforms the city. And he's very aware of this. This is a big part of his ideology. Uh, the poets of the Augustan court sing about this. Um, you know, he brags about this in his uh, official records. His right-hand man, Agrippa, right? He has his name on the Pantheon in Rome. You'll see him today in Rome, right? Uh, and that's, that's a new phase. It's a new phase. And it, it is a matter of political will, which did not exist beforehand, to, to sort of unify the city. It tells us about that fragmentation of earlier Rome. I mean, you have to think of... of Haussmann in, in Napoleonic Paris, you have to think of Robert Moses in, in New York uh, in the 20th century, right? These sort of people who gain political control are able to do things on a grand scale uh, in the city of Rome that was just impossible with the Republican government before. It's been great chatting with you, Seth. Um, so what are you working on these days? I've been working on Italy. It's been great chatting with you too, Andrew. I have to say time has absolutely flown here. I, uh, I've been working <laughs> in Italy fun. now. I've been doing some of these same questions of uh, economic structure uh, and and change in, uh, in the Republican period, thinking about uh, the peninsula of Italy. So I've got a big project on the economy 
of Italy. As Rome is expanding, what's happening in the peninsula? As Rome is conquering the world, what's happening to Italians uh, on a socioeconomic basis? Um, that's what's occupying my time these days. Cool. Uh, and it's been fun. Cool. It's been great having you on the show, Seth. You too. Well, thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. Okay, everybody. The book, again, that I mentioned that Dr. Bernard wrote Building Mid-Republican Rome, Labor, Architecture, and the Urban Economy. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Seth and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.